Hello. Hello, good morning. Hi, I'm Yannick. Yes, nice Yannick, how are you? <laughs> yeah, good. How are you? Thanks for, for doing this. Of course. Maybe let's talk uh, first about the title of the book, which I felt was a bit yeah not, not straight ahead because hidden figures could be more or less anything. Um, why did you choose the title uh, Hidden Figures? Well, uh, first of all, I have to tell you that Hidden Figures was probably about the fifth title of the book. <laughs> um, it took a while for me to, to hit on the right title. And honestly, I don't even quite remember the moment when Hidden Figures came to the fore as the right title for the book. But the thing about that title um, is that it's rich in meaning, and it stands for the women, um, particularly the black women who were uh, segregated away into their own office, um, so the hidden people. And it really also refers to the numbers. So we see the astronauts, we see these great triumphs of breaking the sound barrier, and we really have no idea, the layperson has no idea, how much work and how much math and how much engineering and how many years, decades of math and engineering went into creating those successes. So um, it's really pulling the curtain back both on the women and on the work that they did. And it also happens to be, I found this out later, it happens to be the name of an Air Force aptitude test for pilots. So it, it had that kind of third resonance that I only discovered after I, I had named the book. Why were these women recruited at that time? What was the, uh, what was the uh, cause that they were recruited Right. So the thing about this story is it has its roots, like so many things in the 20th century, it has its roots in World War II. So what was happening is that at the same time that the demand for aircraft was skyrocketing, you know, everywhere in Germany, the United States, Britain, um, the, the men who were, had been working as engineers and mathematicians were going off to war. So there was a real shortage of people who could do the mathematical analysis and calculating that was necessary to, to develop aircraft. So what happened is they started, um, they originally started recruiting white women. That started in 1935 and it really skyrocketed during, you know, as, as World War II started to happen. And then in 1943, the first group of black women walked through the door at something that was then called the Langley Memorial Aeronautical Laboratory in Hampton, Virginia, which just happens to be where I grew up. So um, these women were recruited. Um, the black women did the same work as the white women. Um, and they were recruited to help to do the math, the analysis, to help make aircraft more efficient, safer, um, and, and dominant, you know, this, this was really um, a critical time in the history of the, the aeronautics industry. And these women were brought in to really fuel that growth and, and to make the United States a dominant power in aircraft. And um, when I first read this, um, I imagined that it would be difficult for an African-American woman to, to make it through society and to, to gather this, this kind of knowledge. I, I guess that at that time it wasn't too common that, um, that there were black mathematicians. Am I, am I correct? Uh, yeah, the, you know, the thing about it is back in those days, um, you know, it, it was much 
less common for people of all backgrounds to go to college and to become educated. And that was particularly so for African-Americans and even more for African-American women. Um, but there there was a cohort of, of middle class, let's say working class, middle class people um, mm-hmm. who managed to go to colleges, most of them black colleges, and to become educated. The thing is, before this time, most of them would have gone to become teachers. So it was a very common thing for a woman who was good in math, and this was also true of the white women, that if a woman were good in math, at, at math, then she studied math and she was expected to then teach math. So the thing that was so exciting for a woman with mathematical talent during World War II is that all of a sudden a door opened and she had the opportunity to become a professional mathematician. So that's what happened um, with these white women. And that was also what happened to these educated black women that I write about in my book. You're talking about the cohort. Uh, how many how many women are we talking about there? Well, that that's a very good question. One of the biggest surprises that I had over the course of researching the book was just how many women there were. You know, I think we often hear stories of a, the first woman or the only woman, the first black yeah. woman, the only black woman. The great thing about this story is that these women were not firsts or only. You know, in each case of the, the black women that I write about and the white women who preceded them, they were all coming to work in a, a pool the same way that we think of a secretarial pool. So my estimates are that from 1943, when the first five black women started working at um, at the Langley Laboratory through 1980, that there may have been as many as 80 black women at all of the NASA centers, not just Langley, but the other centers, working as professional mathematicians, and that they are part of a larger group of women of all backgrounds that was certainly several hundred, several hundred strong and possibly more than a thousand women. So, you know, mm-hmm. this is, this is a not insignificant um, cohort of women working as professional mathematicians, you know, for several decades and, and really we're only just now coming around to acknowledge the work that they did and their contributions. So we're in ni- 1943, and these five first women awi- arrive at Langley's. Um, can you tell us, or me, a bit about the circumstances they were at, at Langley's when they arrived? Like, did they were they faced with distrust or maybe even racism? What was it like to work at in 1943 at Langley's as a black woman? Right. So the first thing to remember is that um, this was in the South, in Virginia, and the the Jim Crow laws that required the separation of races uh, were very much still in effect. So although these women, um, you know, had this wonderful opportunity before them of becoming professional mathematicians at one of the most exclusive engineering organizations in the world, um, they were still required to abide by the state laws. So, for example, The black women um, worked together, their computing pool, they worked together in their own office called West Area Computing. That was the technical name of their group, although people kind of knew them as the colored computers, referring to their race. Um, They had colored bathrooms. They had a colored table in the cafeteria. So all of those those segregation laws, those Jim Crow laws, applied to those women um, in their daily work. And of course, that was the case for them in the town of, of Hampton, where they lived, and in the state of Virginia and throughout the South. So 
if they were to go from Farmville, Virginia, as Dorothy Vaughn did when she first took the job at Langley, um, to Hampton, she rode the bus and she had to ride in the back of the bus. Um, There were restaurants that the prisoners of war, you know, there was a prisoner of war camp there in in Hampton, Virginia. There were restaurants where those men could go, you know, enemies of the United States, where the black women and the the black men who lived there could not go. So, um, you know, they, they started their work when when these racial discrimination laws and practices were, were very much in effect and circumscribed their lives. I read that your father was uh, also a, um, a scientist working at NASA. Um, was that your motivation to to tell the story, to research it, and then tell it? Uh, I would say that that the fact that my father was a, a research scientist at NASA uh, was sort of the seed of the story. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I I'm I think of myself as very much a product of this history. Uh, my father started working as an intern in 1964 and started full time in 1966. So. He was able to build on two decades of work by these these black women who had come before him. Um, And so as a consequence, growing up there, I knew a lot of these women. I would see them around town because they were my parents' friends and my father's colleagues. And I knew that they worked at NASA. Uh, But, you know, I was it was just as likely that I saw them as. Mrs. Johnson, who's in my mother's sorority, or Mrs. Land, who I see at church. And it was really when my husband, who he's not from Hampton, um, we were visiting my parents six years ago, and my father was talking about some of these women. That was really the, the time when uh, he said, you know, with his very fresh outsider eyes, wow, this is an amazing story, talking about all these women calculating the launch windows for the astronauts and things like that. And it was a moment for me to reflect and say, wow, I grew up with this. I sort of took it for granted to a certain extent. And yet I don't really know the story. I I know these women. I knew they worked at Langley. But I didn't really know the story and how they got there. And that was really the beginning of of this journey that has become Hidden Figures. But now we're at 2017. Okay, the book uh, was published in 16. Or 15? That's correct. Uh, it was published in September 2016, so about five months ago, four months ago. How come that it that it took so long to to tell for someone to tell that story? I mean, we're we're talking about events that happened before I was born. Why did it take so long? You know, I, that is a great question. I would say that I get that question more frequently than any other question relating yeah, I, to this history. Of course. Um, you know, there are, lo- there are a lot of reasons. One is that a lot of the work was classified at the time, you know, that, that we mm-hmm. remember during World War II and the Cold War, um, you know, a lot of the stuff was secret and considered, um, you know, state secret. So they did not talk about it. Um, another reason is that, you know, for the black women, they literally were sequestered away, segregated away in their their own office. Um, So they were less visible because of that. A big reason is because it was considered women's work. We simply didn't Mm -hmm. value this. You know, the engineers were the men and they did the brawny calculating and the flight test and the big ideas. And they handed off all of these numbers to the women. And to a certain extent, you know, they they sort of thought of the women as extensions of the mechanical desktop calculators that they used. 
Um, you know, and it, it, it's only, I think, now with our understanding and our sensitivity to the, the participation of so many different people in a country's history and the contributions of ordinary people from all backgrounds that we're really looking and we're saying, hey, you know, the, the, the development of the, of the aeronautics industry and of the space program would not have happened without the people to do the computing any more than our modern society, um, you know, would, would get up and, and go to work and go forth every day if our computers simply started, uh, decided to stop working. Um, those women were, were very much like that for that particular work and those engineers. And, um, you know, every story has its time for, for a lot of different reasons. I think that uh, the time for telling the story um, is simply now. Yeah, and the story is has worked. I mean, the, the book was, uh, I think, uh, one of the uh, best-selling books last year. Um, do you think this is because it's... It's a story about space. Is that maybe like also one of the reasons because so many people are fascinated still by this subject, um, and uh, especially in America, I guess uh, you have this this culture of of NASA that's like uh, maybe a, some sort of pride for the nation. Maybe that's also a reason why this this story worked and people are trying to like. Uh, gather also the information which has been hidden for for long decades. I I absolutely think that's true. You know, I think there's so many aspects of this story. Obviously, it's a story about African Americans and that history. It's a story about women and women's history, um, mm -hmm. and it is a story about space. I mean, space is this really exciting thing. You know, and even though the glory days of Project Apollo and landing on the moon are now four decades mm -hmm. in the past it's still very much a part of American culture and American mythos, you know, and um, we've, we've heard the story. We've seen Apollo 13. Mm -hmm. We've, you know, read the right stuff. We've, we've seen all of these things of these astronauts um, and their successes and, you know, a little bit about the men in mission control. So we already have the, the, the big picture of what happened. And I think what's happening now is that we've, you know, we pulled back the curtain to see that these women were also there. These black women were working on the space program, um, one of the great prides of our country. And um, so their story is now united with this very big picture American story. And, and I think that's, that's part of the reason why so much energy um, is, is uh, flowing into this story um, since the book and, and now the movie um, is in the theater. In 14 days, astronauts will be here for training. And we're shooting a human into space, and it's never been done before. With the launch of the Russian spy satellite, the president is demanding an immediate response. Space test group needs a computer. Catherine's the gal for that. She can handle any numbers you put in front of her. You and I are different from each other. This is about inventing the math, because without it, we're not going anywhere. Yes, sir. That's John Glenn. What do you guys do for NASA? Calculate your launch and landing site. The whole story, um, I think, has, a, has some sort of backstory there. There are two events. Um, one is the war that was happening, uh, like the Cold War. And the second was that um, Miss, uh, Philip Randolph, the, um, the activist, pressured uh, President Roosevelt to, to sign the executive orders um, to end the discrimination. Is it because of these these events that that this whole story was possible at the end? 
I do. I mean, I think that it's because of those structural events um, that you're very correct that A. Philip Randolph, um, who was a labor leader and civil rights mm-hmm. activist, um, pressured Franklin Roosevelt to open the federal service, you know, the civil service, the defense industry um, to African-Americans and not just African-Americans. Um, there were many situations where Jews and Poles and Mexicans and many other people of, of other backgrounds had been blacklisted from taking these jobs during the war. So yeah. that particular mm-hmm. action actually benefited um, quite a number of people in the United States. So, yes, absolutely. That was one of the things that happened. Um, the great demand for labor in all sectors, including this intellectual labor labor for um, skilled mathematicians, um, those were definitely the factors that made it possible. And, um, you know, the thing about it was that there there were – um, you know, since the end of slavery in the middle or the, the 1860s in the United States, um, there had been founded any number of colleges, including Hampton Institute. Um, it's now called Hampton University. And my mom mm-hmm. actually went to school there. But there were a number of universities founded to educate black people uh, following the end of the Civil War. So by the time World War II started, um, there was a system, you know, an infrastructure um, for producing well-educated um, African Americans who were in a position to take those jobs once the chance was given to them. What I find interesting as, as well is that you 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 did your research like like a journalist did. You you went there. You talked to all the or like to many women who worked at that time uh, at Langley's. Um, And you met Katherine Johnson. What's she like? Well, you know, I, I was just in Hampton and I saw her yesterday. I spent some time uh-huh. with her yesterday afternoon. Um, she is a, a charming, charismatic, self-possessed, super smart, obviously, brilliant, um, funny woman. She's she's a delightful person. Um, you know, she is both a... a an obviously um, an unusually extremely talented mathematician, um, but she's also uh, a very charismatic person. Uh, you know, she is personable. She is likable. Um, she and, and those personal qualities were also things that made it possible for her to come into that workplace and to be a black woman in the South, which was still segregated, and to gain the confidence of the white male engineers that she worked with and to put herself in a situation where the, what was obvious to her became obvious to everyone, which is that she was the right person at the right time for the job that was in front of them. Uh, it's very interesting. I think people from that generation in general, and I think women from that generation, the World War II generation um, uh, in particular, um, have a modesty about the work that they did. You know, and I think it, it, that modesty is probably reflects the expectations that society had of them. You know, so if you ask Katherine Johnson, and I, I think she's um, kind of It finds all of this attention a little bit curious, you know, that, that people are so interested in this work that she did back in the 1960s and this moment that she had when she supported um, John Glenn's flight, his this pioneering orbital flight. 
And she's just as likely to look at you and say, well, listen, I was just doing my job. Um, Even though this was obviously a very high pressure, very necessary, um, you know, uh, job. This is not your run-of-the-mill job, but um, and she did it well, obviously. But she's she and these other women um, were very likely to say, um, "I was just doing my job." At the same time, I think that all of them are very grateful for the attention and for the um, the spotlight that were shining on the work that the women did back then, because they didn't get. Um, the the accolades that they deserved. They weren't credited all the time, even in the research with the work that they had done, even if they had done the work that was very similar to their male counterparts. So I think that um, it's a wonderful moment for these women to reflect on the work that they did, the contributions that they made to our country, and um, and the, the infrastructure that they built so that uh, subsequent generations of women like me could come into a workplace and have much higher expectations and, mm-hmm. um, you know, m- many greater prospects. Yeah. Uh, is that the one thing that you would say is also like important to you? Like the one, maybe um, if you boil down all the, all the information that you've got, um, for someone who reads your book or some someone who will like uh, watch the film um is that like that these women were like kind of or are role models for 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 many people nowadays because of their their the struggle they had to go through and um and w- because of what they have achieved as well is that the one thing or would you say um there's something else that struck you while investigating the story uh Well, you would say that this, uh, you wouldn't have expected this. Uh, you know, I would say that is, that is a really important thing. I mean, the fact is we have this idea of what a scientist is or what a mathematician is, and it usually looks like Albert Einstein, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and, um, if anyone who doesn't look like that, uh, often gets filtered out as either being a scientist or mathematician, even if they are, or, um, being put on the path to being one, even if they have the talent. And I think the thing that this, what I hope this movie will do and the book and, you know, the story Mm -hmm. and these women is it really opens up all of our minds um, about who can do this work, you know, that we can really find mathematical and scientific talent in all corners of our society. And if those people are given a chance, then they are able to work together um, with people from all backgrounds to achieve just spectacular things for, for our countries. All right. Thank you. Thank you, Yannick. I, I enjoyed our conversation. <laughs> so I'm curious. I mean, I don't... So I know a lot of the translations, like in the Spanish and, and Italian. Mm-hmm. So what is the literal translation of the German title? They they took the English title, Hidden Figures, um, and then they added just the translation, the German translation. And what is the, uh, what is the is it just is it literally hidden figures in German as well? Yeah, it's uh, I think it's versteckte Figuren, so that's uh, literally uh, yeah hidden figures. And does it have um, does it does it have the same kind of resonance and uh, you know the same kind of layers of meaning in German as it does, you know? Since I'm not since I'm not uh, like not the mother tongue in English, I don't know if, like what's resounding with with hidden figures. For me, it's a I think it's good that they kept the English title as well. Uh, 
also because um, so that we know that's an, just an American story and uh, um, yeah, but I think maybe they 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 could have chosen another title in German, but I, mm. I'm not sure which one. Yeah. Yeah. Interview conducted January 13th, 2017. Catherine Johnson passed away yesterday, February 24th, 2020. Music by Blue Dot Sessions. Thank you for listening. <laughs>